0: there was already violence involved but i number 1 had no language for what was happening to me i didn't know that it was violence and number 2 it wouldn't have mattered anyway because he said he was god's best for my life and i was conditioned to accept whoever said they were god's best for my life um so i was easy prey easy picking i was super easy <laughs> juicy fruit from the tree
1: Welcome back to Prey vs. Predator. We have another amazing podcast for you listeners. Uh, Today we have another guest from Shiny Happy People, the Duggar Family Secrets, Tia Levings. We are so thrilled to have you here with us. Uh, Unfortunately, our uh, co-host Jill is not with us, so it'll just be Amber, myself, and PJ. So just for our listeners who are listening going, where is Jill? We do have questions from her, so she is in here in spirit. But welcome, Tia. We are so thrilled for you to be here. And uh, how would you like to
0: introduce yourself to our listeners? Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. First of all, Um, I educate on the abuses in Christian fundamentalism. So that has um, manifested in the documentary itself, Shiny Happy People, but also I have a memoir coming out um, next August of 2024 called A Well-Trained Wife, My Escape from Christian Patriarchy. Um, I also write a lot online and create a lot of social media content around anti-fundamentalism, leaving fundamentalism, trauma recovery, religious trauma. Um, pretty much runs a gamut of whatever's in our pop culture or headlines that I can trace to fundamentalist roots, um, which is more than a full time job right now. <laughs> so much. <laughs>
1: yeah. Going your, on. your social media content, I have to say, is excellent yeah uh, it is really really good and it is really astonishing so please follow um do you want to maybe list your social media accounts right now as we yeah, talk about
0: it yeah Tia Writer everywhere that's yeah that's the handle I use everywhere Tia Lettings Writer
1: yeah your short reels and all of it is amazing so thank you for Thanks. yeah well we should get into your story.
2: Yeah. Would you mind telling our listeners a little bit? We saw you on shiny, happy people. Um, mm-hmm. We were sort of drawn to not just your story, but we were drawn to the energy with which you told your story. It came from sure. a place or, or it appeared for us. Um, one of the things we always want to do is look for um, prey who who are powerful and mm-hmm. uh, and have, and, and in our minds, prey are always powerful, but you don't always know that because mm, there's so many, right. especially when you're involved with a predator or a predatory system in your case. a multi, You had the predator and predatory systems. Uh, Correct. But your energy came across as somebody who has gotten to the other side. And, uh, and I don't mean that in a finite way, but somebody who is processed and processing and... And finding your voice and using it to speak and to protect and save other people in your same space. So that was a real attraction for us. Um, But can you tell us, because we didn't really hear a ton about you and your story. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Like, how
0: did you get into this system? Were you born into it? That sort of sort of. I mean, my story, first of all, I'm really glad that that power conveyed because it's really deliberate. It's my survival strategy is can be pretty much encapsulated in how to find and identify, locate and draw upon my own power in a disempowering situation. Um, So I'm really grateful that that came across. Um, And also my story is what I call Cooked. It's um, I escaped my marriage and high control patriarchy in 2007, and I began writing the story in 2010, and I've been writing it for 12 you know, years. Um, it's no longer traumatizing for me to share my story, which is not true of a lot of survivors where they will be reactivated um, and re-traumatized in the sharing of their story. Um, so... That's what it's called cooked when a memoir is able to be shared and the and the meaning extrapolated from it. Um hmm. that's that's power that you that that means that I can share it without yeah. um becoming victimized again. I love that. Um I've never heard that yeah, term I've,
1: actually. So that's really oh, yeah. powerful. Thank you for that.
0: And it's an interesting braid because writing the story, like you'll hear that common advice given to a lot of survivors, is you should write your story. Um, The act of writing it by itself is part of healing because you are able to see it in a more objective light. The events of what happened to you, when you have to put them into language in order to write them down, you have to name them, which is huge. You have to um, sit with the definitions and the identities that you may have resisted. You may have a lot of denial about. You may see it from different angles because it's in black and white on page and you can like your sense of inner justice can come into the picture. and then the editing process like so much of writing is rewriting mm-hmm. so when you go through that process over and over again you're um titrating your story and integrating that trauma into your body so the act of writing itself is part of your healing journey so in the end you have this beautiful end product because you've you've unlocked your voice you've told your story um and that's what's happened to me it's writing my book was the single most <laughs> best decision of my my probably outside of my escape um It's it helped me change timelines. It helped me completely transform my life, Um, and I always recommend it to survivors. Just I started as a journal. It wasn't like I didn't set out to write a book. So I always tell survivors: write your story and start with language. Um, but to your question of if I was born in it, (laughs) it's an interesting (laughs) parallel. I'm 49, and over the past 50 years. The evangelical church in America has politicized and radicalized, which follows the trajectory of my life. So whereas a lot of us Gen X kids were born into what we might call ordinary Christian homes. Um, it doesn't look that way anymore. O- what an ordinary mm-hmm. Christian home is today does not look like it did in 1974. Um, the first 10 years of my life, I was um, in Michigan. <laughs> Excuse me. I was in Michigan. and. Um, just church on church occasionally a few times a year, my parents both grew up in some kind of Christianity. And so it was part of our vernacular and tradition, but it wasn't dominant. And then we moved to Florida and we joined a mega church, a Southern Baptist mega church that changed everything. Um, and that Southern Baptist mega church is like, right in the middle of the Southern Baptist convention controversy that we see with the current speaker of uh, the house that was elected last week. So yeah. it really is very full circle for me, the the pastors and the influences that are in Mike Johnson's life were also part of my upbringing when I was 12. Like it's, there's a continuity there that's um, absolutely vivid in history.
1: Yeah, it is interesting, and we'll get back on topic, but even that Mike Johnson, I heard him say, what do I believe? Just read the Bible. And I was Mm -hmm. like, I I turned to my co-host here, and I'm like, what does that mean? Like, what does that mean? Because the Bible is like, it's such a diverse book about, it's just, it's a confusing sentence to me. It's predatory
0: rhetoric. That's because you're on the outside of this. To the insiders, that's a dog whistle. He's signaling to everybody in the conservative movement that scripture is clear. That is a phrase they use. That signals I'm from the same group you're from and you can trust me. To the rest of us, that sounds like what? The Bible's full of violence. It's totally. thousands of years old. What the fuck? That's not who he's talking to. He's talking to his people. That's his dog whistle. Scripture is clear is a phrase.
1: Yeah, but they don't break it down to say, what is it clearly telling you? Because I'm like, if you open Genesis, it's very different than Psalms. And, you know, it's very different than the words of Jesus. I'm like, it's such a massive book with
2: massive stories. But not to them. That's, that's what I'm hearing you say, Tia. Yeah, not to yeah. the people he's whist- dog-whistling to. Yeah,
0: It points into whatever legislation they're talking about at the moment. So mm. he'll pair it with Scripture is clear And then he'll he'll be you know voting against LGBTQ marriage, Um, and excuse me, that's what he's saying. Scripture is clear about in his in his tradition, scripture is clearly against gay marriage. Therefore, our American nation should be against gay marriage because our American nation is biblical, and his whole agenda is to make us a biblical nation, um, which is not what America was ever supposed to be about. But they're Dominionists, so Um. yeah, they want to take. You know,
2: of yeah. the country, uh, I feel like we're like I have eight. Other, we, I have we're going to get back to that. <laughs> well, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. Start asking. This. questions. Yes. Like,
0: there's a full circle. There where, is a full
2: circle, and I knew we were going with weeds. We are but today, <laughs> let's go back to your story. We want to know more about you. Uh, before we derail you, we're going to derail you enough for this conversation. <laughs> we're going to try to, we're going to, we don't have Jill here. She often will bring us back. Yeah. So
0: I'm going to try. Okay. Well, we can start back at the Southern Baptist church. Um, okay. It was first Baptist Jacksonville. And um, if you have other religious trauma survivors on here or anyone familiar with um, evangelical uh, traditions in the past 30 or 40 years, which includes purity culture, um, very strict rules about what we were to become as girls. You only become a Christian wife and a mother. That's it. Um, if you go to college, it's to either get your MRS degree and get married, or it's to, um, become a teacher or something else that you can use as a mother and as a wife. Um, and so the grooming for the path for the, over the 18 years, you know, is that they turned out a reliable product of, um, young girls who were virgins on their, on their wedding day, they got married young, they set out to have children. Um, that was the product, the product of the, of the church was to to have this um, very subservient, submissive, complementarian woman who was going to serve and make her world um, in orbit around a man. Um, so I was just like, Everyone else that graduated from my class. So nothing really remarkable about me. We were we were all very similar. Um, another thing that was true of that church was that the pastors had both we had two co-pastors. Um, Jerry Vines was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention and Homer G. Lindsay was um just a Southern Baptist good old boy. They all there's all these connections to um, southwestern and southeastern theological seminaries, but anyway, um, they had short engagements and they really supported Mm. that we all have short engagements so that we can get to the good stuff as quick as possible. Um, Hmm. So I met the man that I married um, like December 1st, we were engaged by December 31st. This was in 1994. We were married the following year and there was already violence involved, but I, number one, had no language for what was happening to me. I didn't know that it was violence. And number two, it wouldn't have mattered anyway because he said he was God's best for my life, and I was conditioned to accept whoever said they were God's best for my life. Um, so I was, I was groomed and conditioned. Easy prey, easy picking. I was super easy, <laughs> juicy fruit from the tree.
2: Perfect, perfect prey because you were mm-hmm. you were groomed that way. Um, here's a question I have: Like when you say you didn't know it was violence. Or you didn't have mm-hmm. a language for violence. Um, uh, certainly, I have an experience as well that it took so long before before I had words to it, and it's hard, I think, for people to understand that point. So, before you go on too much with your story, can we can we backtrack mm-hmm. a little bit? When you say um, I I didn't know it was violence, but was something in you knows it's not okay. Um, or knows that you don't feel good. So how, what was the thinking, like, what was the grooming in your head that, that let you keep going? That's an excellent question. And it's a really
0: important one that goes to the earliest roots of human depravity, understanding original sin, understanding, um, a girl's role in conflict. If there's conflict, it's her job to smooth that over, smile, solve the waves, um, i have red hair so i was always told i had a redheaded temper <laughs> that definitely colored my entire understanding of anger or um assertiveness or opinions um cuz just me i'm not really it's not about my hair color you know it's mm-hmm. um anytime i asserted myself it could be called temper which was sin
2: mm-hmm. um
0: and so when we got into like a minor conflict minor um i asked for french fries when we were dating for we were like dating five months we were engaged i asked for french fries 69 cents french fries from mcdonald's on a road trip um he cuffed me across the throat and threatened to decapitate me by semi-truck on the interstate now i was thought that violence is if they punch you in the face so Um. My thought process interpreted that as I shouldn't have upset you. I asked for too much. Um, It's okay. I can make this better. He must be having a bad day, like endless excuses and understanding to accommodate and be a good help meet. Um, There's just so much that went into that interpretation. So then I would suppress it and, you know, try and get the waves as smooth as possible. It's one of the most significant traumas of my life. It still affects me on road trips today. Mm. Um, And it was years before i realized i didn't have any responsibility in that that something that happened
2: to me that that hit that hit so hard yeah yeah well and also i
1: think like even when you're talking it it depends on like even your childhood experience like from even the house i grew up in it was a lot of raging so whether or not you that is how people talk or that is how somebody in your you know your headship who is your parents or your husband in this sort of umbrella system that um, Bill Gothard thought up? Uh, you you be okay with that? I don't know if that's your story, but I could I could imagine that that would be well. This is how people. This is what headship is. You know, mm-hmm. it makes me think of even in the documentary they talked about the gifts. Right? You could be a mercy or a prophet, mm-hmm. and I I just I hate. I have <laughs> such a loathing for it because it 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 justifies being an asshole. Right. As being a prophet. And if you're mm-hmm. a mercy, you shut the fuck up and you take mm-hmm. it. And it's so convenient to this predatory system. And it just kind of it it influence, it's just an example of that
0: in your story. I have an interesting anecdote about that. Um, so I we should clarify, I wasn't raised I myself wasn't raised Gothard. Oh, okay. um, Overtly. Right. If we look back and we look at the pattern, yes, I was. This is what's happening to America, what happened to me. It's the influence and the infiltration. So Gothard's um, followers had infiltrated our church leadership and had influenced our Sunday school programs, training programs, conversation, role models, everything. We were surrounded by it. So I absolutely was formed by IBLP theology doctrine practices behavior standards but i didn't know to call it that because nobody puts up um this is from bill gothard <laughs> he's really really good at under the radar um and an influence versus um attribution part of his humility shtick. so my parents mm. um You know, they're just hardworking Midwestern people who wanted to belong. They brought us to a church because they wanted to have a church family and they loved the youth programs and the choir and the orchestra and, you know, all of that. And they didn't really know what they were getting us into. And I don't think the church really knew what they were getting into. At the same time period in history, the Southern Baptist Convention was going through a fundamentalist takeover that impacted all the leadership. And Bill Gothard is involved in that leadership. And the church itself was politicizing and becoming more conservative. So while I didn't know at the time that I was learning about the, the authority structure and head of household and all of that, it was it was part of my formation and it was happening. Um, when I met my actual mentors, because by the time I got married and had my first baby, that's when I met women, a group of women who actually mentored me into the IBLP's materials. Um, they told me I was a prophet. Oh. And it's rare. For yeah. to be a prophet in the Ivy League. <laughs> yeah. Again, so we've heard. Happened. Yeah. So now I was a problem because I'm opinionated. I see the truth. I call it out. I use my mouth. My mouth's going to get me in trouble. My mouth's going to, you know, I'm going to be an asshole basically like that. I'm going to have to really work hard to make myself small and mm. polite and demure and submissive and, you know, all of the things. So, um, it's. I didn't know how rare it was for a woman to be a prophet until I was out and I started connecting with other survivors, and they were like, "Oh, the women are all mercy, and the men are all prophets." And I was like, "They said I was a prophet."
1: <laughs> wow. <laughs> Maybe I. <laughs> well, and, and and that that is the first time I would say that they were probably correct. You know <laughs> what I mean? <laughs> yeah, because. That was my assumption, too. If you've got, um, if you're female or if you've got maybe a softer spirit or, you know, mm-hmm. a gentler approach, well, you're a mercy, you
2: but, know. But interesting, the, uh, as a female who who even the, even if they have recognized you as a prophet, it sounds like the message to you is uh, really really work at making that low, <laughs> like really yeah. let like let's take the volume and turn it down to one. So don't use it mm-hmm. to, Sounds like the the message. Even if you have that gift, if you were a man, yeah. you would use it, and as a woman, but, you've got to train yourself to to not or to to su- it. suppress Correct. it, which is also yeah. what a, what good is it? Well, that was one of my questions.
0: One of the questions that led to my escape was, oh. why, why am I here? What, 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 what does God need and what does my family need that is uniquely me? Because they can swap me out with a better servant, house cleaner. Um, you know, basically anything could be replaced with a prostitute and a maid. So, what do you need me for? Mm. Was one
2: of the end questions I asked before a week before I escaped. If Jill was here, Jill would say, I'm going to guess. She has a real, an amazing quote about, um, something about like life is defined by the quality of questions that you ask. Um, oh, I love that! And uh, so, so, uh, so it sounds like you're asking the just the quality of question that you asked yourself in that moment was so powerful. So you're in this relationship, you've got abuse yes. happening, you don't have a language for the abuse, um, and then take us from there. Yeah, we got married and you know there's so much focus on being a
0: virgin bride, not a lot of focus on what it means to be a Christian wife. Um and I had no sex education. Um so I shut down really fast after my wedding. I was uh, raped three times on my wedding night and I I didn't know to call it that. I just knew, wow, this hurts. Wow, I I asked him to stop. Wow, I I don't I don't know what happened to me. Um and it was really rough. Like we, he's also, I should give you a little background. He's um, got narcissistic personality disorder, bipolar and borderline. Um, He's also an addict and was not treated. I didn't know that those, that's those more language I didn't know. And in the nineties, we didn't even talk about that. No. But I was trying to navigate it. And so um, I shut down. I was pregnant really quickly long story of the pregnancies is that over over that 10 years i had 9 pregnancies and 5 children so that was wow. that was the pace but we only had sex about once a year um because he really hated touch or contact or fluids or intimacy of any kind so it was always really quick um no kissing no no affection um so sexual like the, the sexual abuse aspect included like neglect and um and just, I don't know what to call it. I've never, (laughs) I need to work on that language because um, we talk about sexual assault and abuse a lot, but we don't talk about um, the neglect piece of it and the Mm. the inhumanity basically. Um, So that was something that was always happening and the babies were coming and I got involved with my mentors, my fundamentalist mentors. Well, my first baby was, was I pregnant still? Just before his birth um, and because I was afraid to have a screaming baby. I was afraid to have somebody crying and erratic and um, not be able to control my household. And this is where the high control situation makes you complicit in your own abuse. In order to stay safe, you have to become so controlling that you're now impacted. Like my personality was radically changing in those years. My sunny, happy disposition, sunflowers and brightness and, you know, happy humor was all, you know, drilling down into this very traumatized, quiet person who absolutely had to remain, uh, keep a firm grip on everything. If I look at pictures from those years, I'm starving. I'm, um, I know that I was scrubbing the house really hard. I was terrified of imperfection. Um, and I have transferred some of that control to everything in my life in the years since, um, dealing with my own complicity. When I trace it backwards, I have to trace it back to the beginning and see how it changed me too. It's not, I'm responsible for choices that I made in high control religion and not all of them were done to me directly. Some of them I was manipulated into because it's survival. Mm -hmm. So the Gothard mentors are an example of that because survival required, I keep my baby quiet. And so I had to learn the Ezos. I don't know if you're familiar with them growing up. Growing Kids God's Way and Baby Wise is a infant scheduling system that the mm. IDLP promotes. Um, and then after that is Michael Pearl's To Train Up a Child. Which We've talked about banking, that. Which was discussed on the um, documentary. Um, and so you get involved in these, you know, practices that they don't lead with. You, you, They're means to an end. The standard is to run a godly home and, you know, keep your keep your atmosphere calm and quiet and glorifying God. But if you want to achieve that kind of quiet with lots of little children, you're going to employ high control practices or there will be consequences. Well, would you say one of those would be the
1: parentification too that was touched upon in the documentary about it? It is interesting because years ago when the Duggar show came out, I remember looking at PJ and being, telling you about this show. And the thing that irritated and made me the angriest was the fact that the older siblings had to take care of the younger ones I just was maybe it was very triggering for me but I was like that is not right and mm-hmm. and you address that how it's abusive and it's these and maybe it's mm-hmm. one of these fundamentalist mentors tactics I don't know could you speak to that yeah. a bit yeah
0: completely it's um it's a it's an abuse that is born out of necessity, but it's also glorified and used by design. Um, They are very overt with it. You can have as many children as you need to have, like because because they're you know touting this quiverful mindset, which is to have as many babies as you can, unlimited babies, so that you can have a quiverful for the culture war against the West. Mm. Um, and if you're if they're going to tell you to have as many babies as you can have, they're going to have to give you some practical solutions for how you're supposed to pull that off. I have a list of things. Um, they it's a series. My most popular series is called ordinary parenting things that my gothard funding mentors said I could skip in order to have a quiver full. And these are, um, parenting aspects, raising children that a lot of people assume are, um, necessary, but we just didn't do so that we could have as many babies as possible. So that included things like playdates, pants, doctors, pediatricians, um, education for girls, college. And there's like just a whole long list of it. One of these ways was to employ the use of of our older children. So they would just overtly say, um, because I would say, how am I going to take care of three kids under three? And how am I going to, you know, how am I going to do this? And they would say, well, it's only hard for a few years. And then your older children will be old enough to help you with the youngers. And parallel to this, they're glorifying the sibling relationship, the beauty of the closeness, the Um, the benefits it is for each sibling to be close to somebody that's very different in age to them. Um, the aesthetic, you know, the beautiful aesthetic is constantly propped. And so you're lulled into forgetting that your older children have needs and that taking care of the baby, having the baby in the bed, um, not doing their schoolwork because they have to babysit and parent your children. Um, isn't meeting your older child's needs. It might be helping you take care of a lot of babies and it might be helping the little baby feel, have a close bond with somebody and rather than get lost in a sea of children, but that older child's needs are being completely neglected. And it's one of the most harrowing and longstanding forms of abuse that survivors talk about, that they, it impacts them for the rest of their lives. They lose their childhoods. And yeah, like, these are girls, mostly girls that are, um, parentified from the time they're eight, seven or eight years old, all the way through. They're exhausted of parenting by the time they're adults. So they've lost, they've lost their normal childhood years and they'll spend the rest of their life um, trying to heal from that.
1: Is the, obviously they're not encouraged to get an education if you're female and all that, but Mm -hmm. would the men, the boys, the, would they be encouraged to get an education? Because education is I don't know i because I, I i'm familiar with the christian school and i know a lot mm-hmm. of people i left midway through my edu- my training as a child so i went to the public school and i've gotten education but i know a lot of people who didn't get an education because that wasn't mm-hmm. encouraged from the, right. the school that i was a part of
0: it's um I, I, it depends how you define education um it's streamlined and it's manipulated to the purpose. So um boys, a lot of resources were devoted to the boys. Like they did get better education than girls because the argument that a girl's not going to need that kind of influences the weather. Like they're just all of their higher education is minimized, um, sometimes deliberately truncated so that <laughs> they can't leave. Um, but with boys, like I saw a lot of emphasis on patriotism, government preparations, yeah. um, getting ready to go. Like there's so much Bible curriculum, like so much spent <laughs> times. They, we called it education, but it, it's not, it's not what the rest of the world would consider a well-rounded education with a broad worldview. This is a very narrow world. Um At the same time, you know, I I still have this part of me that values home education and the attention that can be devoted to a a child's personal strengths and um, the scary, the scary landscape parents are facing today, you know, Mm -hmm. with education choice. Um, And so I tend to be kind of careful in this area. I just so much educational neglect and religious indoctrination that is sheltered um, because of the homeschooling aspect to this um and it's control it all comes down to control they're not raising individuals who are going to go out and impact the world for good they're raising um uniform soldiers in their culture war and so yeah education's relative
2: yeah yeah um so so you're um you're at this place in your life where you've got five children you've got an abusive mm-hmm. partner uh you're you're inundated with mentors who are who are uh, uh, what sounds like um continuing this process of of sort of weaponizing your empathy and compassion and desire to um to be good mm-hmm. or to be good enough or to please um, how do you get out of this how like at, how how did you transition into you you were all in mm-hmm
0: all right, so um I was looking at three kids under 3 in 99 and I was scared of how I was going to do that and I had a feeling something was wrong. And when I went into labor at 32 weeks, I knew that that was too early to deliver a baby at home safely. Um I wasn't supposed to go to doctors or the hospital. Um they were all, you know, very afraid of that <clears throat> I would be involuntarily vaccinated or my they would urge me to terminate if something was wrong with my baby. At 32 weeks that wasn't going to happen, but whatever. I was scared. And I went to the doctor and, um, they found heart defect and she was born, um, at term 39 weeks and had hypoplastic left heart syndrome. I spent, um, two months in the hospital with her. She had heart surgery and, um, and I really started mentally breaking away from my mentors at that time is the first time I was away from them on my own. um, around career women and doctors and science and and then she died the night we were supposed to go home. Oh, and I'm sorry. It completely altered me. I that world bypasses grief so extremely and children are so interchangeable. They allowed me to be a little sad about it but then it was you know, give God the glory and move on. Keep having babies. Don't talk about it. Don't make us uncomfortable. Um, God answers prayer when it's a good thing, but when, when something bad happens, like the baby dies, we don't want to talk about that, you know, and Mm -hmm. I was not able to do that. I was not able to live my life as if she didn't exist. And it caused a chasm within me to, have to hold this grief that I could not hold. I hadn't ever lost anybody, let alone a child. And um my kids were my whole like reason for being. Um and ultimately they're they're what saved me. They're what pulled me through. They're the whole reason I didn't commit suicide. Like there's there's just so much with my with motherhood in my story. Um and to lose a baby was, you know, a direct confrontation of that and so I had to confront like was I going to how I was going to hold her legacy and she wasn't supposed to have a legacy in fundamentalism because she didn't she died that was number one like is as simple as they, while they were praying for us in the hospital, they wanted us to give our testimony. And when she died, they didn't want our testimony anymore. Cause it didn't have a good outcome. Ugh. Like that kind of like very practical granular level. And I was like, fuck that. No, like she lived, she changed me. I'm not the same person. I can't go back to who I was before her. And so from a character standpoint, it broke me open and it, I started asserting myself in ways that I couldn't have before I stopped spanking my children I stopped um I started integrating other methods of homeschool I was just making choices that were important to me to me bolstered by each one and so internally this um independence was growing and what I was doing was self actualizing I was only 23 years old when she died so I was going through the actualization process of a child becoming an adult through these hard situations I didn't know to call it that you know that's the language I have today But at the time, um, my assertiveness and independence was growing. And so seven years passed. um, And during that time, our theology became more restrictive and more fundamentalist. We Mm. left the IBLP, but we get into some darker chapters of America that are very much alive and thriving. Um, And it was seven more years before, from a physical standpoint, I could leave um but the emotional and mental um steps began in 99
2: so um i mean this this already if we can just take a quick second here in terms of you you got to escape for a brief period of time um we call it like like a precation um you you yes. you <laughs> because that's one of the ways in that moment in that time um, you are able to start doing something that this this predatory system does not ever want you to do, which is mm-hmm. to touch base with yourself, to rely yeah. on your own intuition, to rely on you and your thoughts and your thinking. And it gave you the space to connect to something. It's, it's almost like you're... Your daughter was the spark that lit this fire in you, like an an, an anger, a a connection to yourself. You know, Amber talks. Uh, you talk a lot about how anger is the thing that, for me, it's fuel. Anger is yeah. fuel. You can be, you know, even in the Bible, it says, "Be angry, but don't sin." You know, so, right. but it, it's fuel. <laughs> it's fuel. But it's, I mean, that's a. I, I think what a legacy, in in many ways this, this life that you had so briefly acted Mm -hmm. as this fire, acted as the spark, acted as the thing that is, is that, is that true for you? I call it
0: clarity. Her name was Clara and it means clarity. And so, and that's what she gave me. She helped me see in a very visceral, stark way, um, what life was, what real love was, um, in that two month period where I was at the Ronald McDonald house in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I was doing all sorts of things. I love the word precation because <laughs> I was doing all sorts of things I wasn't supposed to be doing, That's amazing. Um, such as, you know, living independently and making decisions, big medical decisions on my own. And, um, And I was getting a break from having my, my toddlers were with other people, which was heartbreaking and difficult, but also allowed me space to rest and, and think my daughter was in the CICU. So it was very regimented and that the result of that was rest and, um, a little break from the violence. I mean, it did find its way to me there. Um, we have a pretty bad abuse scene in the, in the middle of that. We threw me out of a car on mother's day. Um, but for the most part, I had a break and, and then I had a huge break when she died because it split me open. And, and I, it is mother rage. Um, but there's just no way that it was
2: more emotion than my body could contain Mm. in so many different ways. That you had a chance to connect to you, but how much Mm -hmm. of that system is set up for you to never do that? Right right? To, 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 to hurt yourself, to demean yourself, to keep yourself, um, so you never get that space to trust you. That that seems to be the thing that's terrorizing for the system.
0: It's the fruit of all the isolation. So yeah. like on the surface, they can argue about vaccines and doctors all day long. The end result, if you never see a doctor, is that your children never see a mandatory reporter and they, and you never hear mm. about resources that would be available to you. And that's the ultimate goal. What The fruit of what's happening is their ultimate goal. It, the rest of it is just distraction. Yeah.
2: I, evil genius. I call that evil genius. Yes, it's, it's just gene- like mm-hmm. the way, the way that the predator's brain thinks is absolutely to be. Um, it's it's so diabolical. It's but it but it's mm-hmm. it's so in completely and utterly void of empathy or compassion and yet it knows how to weaponize empathy and compassion but i I think we're i think we were
1: we were talking about that even we asked a a doctor do you think that these people who are evil geniuses like have a blueprint like ha ha ha, i know what i'm gonna do or is it all intuitive Mm -hmm. to what they need in the moment and it becomes like a momentary decisions You know, and it seems like it's it might even be both because it sounds like these movements have somewhat of a blueprint and thinking on a level that is like for the future. You know, how do we manipulate governments? How do we eugenics? All of that. But also there's
0: these like instinctual needs that these predators have. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: I think it's both because the systems themselves are are comprised of like narcissists i'm not a doctor and can't i di- can't diagnose people but there's a personality of a high control personality and a woundedness in them that makes them want this kind of system in the first place and congeal and create these systems and then everything is just a capitalistic tool to them so mm. one thing i say a lot is that they use my own motherhood against me all the time they would use the thing that you love the most against you because it's just a tool in their hands and if you're empathetic and kind that's just material for them to use. That's just a way to get at you and make you do what they want you to do. And they know you will because you're kind and you're serving and you're, you know, you're you're accommodating. Um, they're not stupid. I haven't really met any stupid patriarchs. They're they're all really <laughs> shrewd.
2: Yeah. Um, and 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 that's know. and that's the thing. Like if you don't know if you don't understand what they do and you don't understand that they, they have different brain structures than you do. They have a different mm-hmm. understanding. And, um, mm-hmm. But I think we're getting off topic yeah, and we want to make I sure do, that yeah. you were
1: talking about this dark period of time. I would like to know what, like what language or what voice did you have internally? Cause in your, in the documentary you talk about like, um, you know, there's this corporal punishment with, you know, your husband and you as a spouse, which it was new to me that that was even a thing.
0: Um, right. uh, you know, they call it, what would it be called? You had a term for They call it Christian domestic discipline. Oh, um, okay. And it's and that's important language to use. Um, it's been scrubbed from the internet, but you can get to it from the Wayback Machine. Um, and, and as a parallel, I will say, just like you can't take, for example, a modern t- today example, you will never find Mike Johnson's name next to Bill Gothard's name that that has been scrubbed we can tell through relationship that it's very likely they've been in the same room at the same table in the same congregations doing the same things and they share all the same cronies the exact same thing happens in the world of discipline so when you are starting out with someone like michael pearl who teaches extreme discipline um and you add to them all these other authors for example um Martha Peace wrote The Excellent Wife. A lot of women read that book and they, and that's all about how to stay with a man, even though he's abusing you and hurting you, Um, how to be submissive and kind to somebody who's mean to you. Um, Add to him, Doug Wilson, which is where we went next. Doug Wilson is still have, has a thriving ministry in America in Moscow, Idaho, Idaho today. He's a mean, cruel misogynist who speaks cruelly to people um, and he teaches federal marriage, federal marriage teaches that a man is responsible for everything that goes on in his household, including his wife's thoughts. And he will answer before God on judgment day for everything his wife said and did. So if he just put yourself in his shoes for a second, if you're a husband and you're going to stand on judgment day for what your wife did, you're going to be damn sure that she obeys you and does what you need her to do so that you don't go to hell. <laughs> the stakes are always hell. So yeah. Put it all together in the same room, in the same books, in the same conversations, and what happened in the when the internet was new is that women had forums where we were talking. Men also had forums where they were talking. And R.C. Sproul Jr. Um, was a columnist in his father's magazine, Table Talk Magazine. Um, And R.C. Sproul Jr. is affiliated with Doug Wilson. They formed their own denomination um, because, of course, they did. Doug Wilson has his own press and university and town and denomination. He's a megalomaniac megalomaniac of the highest order. Um, But R.C. Sproul Jr. had something called the basement tapes and men would get these tapes and, um, listen to them in their cars, like sermons. And, but this is the beginning of, of what we call the Theoboros, where they sit around and toss these big lofty ideas about God and smoke cigars and drink whiskey and talk about doctrine. Um, the basement tapes are like the origin of that. And there were private forums where they would talk about, well, how do you get your wife to obey, and like, how do you actually run a federal household, and um, and how do you keep the order in your home, and and it can be as simple as like teaching your children the catechism. They would talk about like, well, how do you do catechism drills? They would also talk about how to discipline your wife, mm. and so there were forums called um, all around christian domestic discipline and and it was a thing behind the paywall and it's a thing that has largely been scrubbed from the internet but there are survivors that are telling their stories and my dms certainly are full all i had to do was say it out loud that's all it took was me to say it on amazon or in my reels and then they're like oh that happened to me too i was a pastor's wife and that happened to me too um So spanking your wife, like you're you're using Michael Pearl's methods and he doesn't, if you read his books, there's no age limit. And so you will hear survivors say, I was an adult daughter spanked until I was 18 and left my house. I was, I I saw my mother disciplined. I, it happens. It's not the most widespread packet uh, practice because not all men want to spank their wives like children. Um, It's just another abuse that's sheltered under the... You know, umbrella of authority, and allowed because of the means to the end that it brings them. Unbelievable. (laughs) I'm sorry. I know, and I'm breathing. I'm taking that in. I'm going. We
1: can breathe for a minute. Yeah, like I need a breath from that because it is. It is so. And and what you're saying is that it's kind of not spoken of Mm -hmm. in these mega churches, but it's Mm -hmm. happening. And it's happening
0: just like everything else that's happening. They also don't lead with um we're not feeding our enough our children enough food or we are not properly educating our kids. They don't they don't lead with that out in the open. It's part of the behavior that happens behind closed doors. And the only way anybody's gonna ever know it is if somebody who lived behind closed doors somehow has the healing to talk about it. Like they have to come all the way through it, get out, be safe, do the work and then be able to say it. And the likelihood, the statistical likelihood um, is not high, which is, I guess, why I do the work that I do, because
2: there's there's just not
0: many liking me. Well, Thank you. What
2: I was going to say is that, that that's why we wanted to move mountains to talk to you, because <laughs> because we need praise voices. We need yeah. people like you. Um, but help mm. us help us bridge that gap um, right. uh, between where you were. Like so. So mm-hmm. in your story where we left you, uh, you had had this break. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, you started to do the dangerous, dangerous work of actually connecting to yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet at the same time, uh, so the, but there's seven years between when you have this break and start connecting to yourself and there's this mm-hmm. world that now you are, you are still in, you are still dominated and controlled by, um, that is promising to rip you from your authentic self and very much is designed to do that. And Mm -hmm. is there, are you trying to hold on to your authentic self? Are you trying to take us through those seven years to where, and then what happened that you got out of that?
0: Yeah. The irony is that those seven years are largely very happy. Okay. I really thought I had a grip for, for at least five and a half of those years, I really thought I had everything under control because I had become at that point, a very high control person. I led, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Terry Maxwell's managers of their home. It's a program where you divide your house, your, your whole day into 15 minute increments.
2: Um, I had,
0: and you can see it on the Duggars show. Like they have the color coded chart on the wall and I'm like, Oh, that's Terry Maxwell's managers of their homes. It's called moth. If you want to Google it. Um, but I had a very regimented household. I thought I was a great Christian wife. I was, um, by that point we were Presbyterian. So it was not as dour as, um, the IBLP vision forum, Doug Phillips vision forum kind of is the the main influence in those years. And, and vision forum was fundamentalism with a better aesthetic. It was very Mm. beautiful um, they had gorgeous catalogs with full color bleeds and all these toys for boys and girls and families in matching clothes. And it was all very attractive. And I was able to do it. I, my, my children are gorgeous. We all dressed like alike. We looked like the Duggars show. This is when the Duggars show hit TV in 20, 2003, 2004 era. Um, and so I focused on just giving my kids the most beautiful childhood they could. I was, um, really grateful for life and motherhood. I was, you know, still, this was still in tribute to my daughter. And, um, I felt like I had a good grip on everything. The way I was coerced into the the, the discipline aspect of it, it was because I was pregnant again. And so I was trying to keep my baby safe. It was sold to me as a way to reduce violence. It would reduce all the erratic violence because he would have a method of correction that was agreed upon. And I wasn't in an, position to argue I'd, I'd gone to a counselor christian counselor at that time yeah. and when it was first posed to me and i told him everything told him everything that happened to me and he gave me um what i now know is the southern baptist convention party line is that divorce is a covenant and it is never marriage is a covenant, covenant and divorce is never allowed and um you he said the counselors that he saw it all the time and that my job was to honor my husband more. So I didn't have a way out. There's, (laughs) there's no like hire an attorney and leave. Um, and so I focused on what I had within my realm, you know, which was running a really sharp household and educating my kids. And, um, I looked for little freedoms in like book choice, um, including art, taking them to museums, going to the library, taking field trips, making friends with non-fundamentalist homeschoolers. Those were my freedoms um, and how I got through. And then um, it, it pretty much helped me tread water through the majority of that time until we moved to Tennessee. Um, my husband needed to isolate me further at that point as I was, I guess, getting too free too big for my britches. I was making money as a photographer. Um, I was starting to write and the advice was to, um, go worship with a congregation of like minds and that existed in Tennessee back to Mm. R.C. Sproul Jr. Um, and his congregation. And so there was a congregation of like minds in Knoxville, Tennessee. And so we moved in 2005 and that it went downhill pretty fast after that. Hmm. What do what do you attribute that to? Um, it's a combination of things. Uh, being in a like-minded congregation with with wife spankers is um dark. <laughs> like it's dark. Um it we were very so dark it was just very patriarchal, very, very much. Like if you watch the handmaid's tale, I call my story, the prequel to the handmaid's tale, because at this point, I mean, that, that congregation was like living in Gilead. Um, and at the same time I had a foot in the secular world of the secular homeschooling world in Tennessee. So I was like four days a week, we were in boy Scouts and American heritage girls and, um, doing all this stuff with the fun Knoxville homeschoolers. But then the other three days of the week, when anytime we were involved with our church, you know, I was wearing a head covering I wasn't supposed to speak Um, and it was was just the darkest of the dark and I was getting more depressed and suicidal at that point. We moved to this mountain town where um, my every move was watched by the neighbors and reported Mm. to my husband Um, and his mental health was slipping at the same time and domestic violence was increasing at the same time. And so a lot of factors came into play. It was never just one thing that broke it. Um, I started writing in two thousand and four, and i my blog took off. basically. what mm. happened is that I was really good at writing for the internet, and my blog was making good traffic gains. It was getting sixty thousand hits a day. and this is a massive lifestyle blog. This is before um this is before the panda algorithm of Google. <laughs> so, um. You could do that. And so this was like Pioneer Woman was one of my buddies when we were blogging, you know, and we comment on each other's blogs. And um, there was just like a whole blog roll of of lifestyle mommy bloggers, and we were the first ones, and and mine was doing really well, and I was using my own name, which was so dangerous and bad. The elders all had a problem with this idea really? that I was writing in my own name and speaking for my family, and so the discipline meetings the church discipline meetings um began. You were being um, a prophet. Initially. What's that? You were being a prophet. <laughs> I guess I was. Yeah, you using... <laughs> just blogging. This is what's so silly about yeah, that blog. I, I was know, blogging I was... about our field trips in Tennessee, apple picking, um, art that I liked. You know, it wasn't there was nothing com- provocative about this site except that it was called living deliberately and the tagline was what if you want to change your life so um, I was clearly working things out <laughs> yeah and the elders read it every day which I thought was hilarious I was like they don't want me writing but they sure they sure are really obsessed with this little housewife blog um
1: how did your husband feel about it too was it did he even care
0: or was it he be he cared once they cared Uh, He cared once they cared because it was one more thing to have to pay attention to because he wasn't managing life very well at that point. He wasn't, he wasn't managing him or life or the extreme load that was on his shoulders. Um, You'll hear me say in my work a lot that um, no, everyone suffers in fundamentalism. And the truth of the matter is I had a mentally ill husband who needed help. He needed a doctor and he needed care. Mm -hmm. And he had more responsibility put on his shoulders than was appropriate because there's a full fledged adult in this marriage with him. And I could have carried my weight instead of been a subservient, you know, shadow in the back to be controlled. Um, We could have had a partnership and that would have relieved some of his burden. Um, But that was denied. It's all all that's denied you. Um, Hmm. So chronologically that was the discipline meetings began in the in the winter of 2006 we were excommunicated in april um because i wrote about mary the mother of god which was heresy i wrote that men needed women oh Oh, that was heretical wow (laughs) yeah like that (laughs) wow (sighs) um and then without the external controls keeping him in line, my husband could not handle anything. It completely fell apart. He needed those external controls to keep, you know, going. Um, and so it it just exploded that we had like a year of hell. And then um October thirty first, two thousand and seven, after four hours of holding me hostage, um, I escaped and took the kids and left at midnight. So we've just had that anniversary last week. Yeah, I was which
1: just is thinking. That. A little
0: bit activated and sensitive yet.
1: Again, I think we need to take a breath. Like, I just think your story is so powerful. And probably for our listeners, it might, you know, elements, everybody's story is so different, right? But we can always like feel, especially if we have had some trauma in our history, um, we can feel it tangibly in our mm-hmm. own bodies. So it's like. Just take a breath with that yeah. and let it land and um and honor the fact that you're telling us a story. thank you yeah because I think what you said in the beginning was about telling your stories and how we need to tell our stories but sometimes it's too much at first and I think mm-hmm. that's super powerful mm-hmm. and but like right now I'm moved the fact that you are telling this and it's 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 a moving story. But just even the fact that you've done the work to get to this place to tell us the story, I thank you for that. I
0: always say that if you're holding a memoir, for example, of a survivor story in your hands, it always has a happy ending because they were they lived to write the story and to tell the story, and so you can always know that even if the story itself gets very difficult. Mm. Um, My story is very difficult and it is visceral, um, but I'm okay. I'm more than okay and I and I knew as it was happening that like I had this like little survival survivor's voice in my head that said you're going to use this someday you're going to make something with this um because that's that's the only meaning I can find in it is is it, it took so much from me it took so much out of my life and my years and my youth and my energy and my body and and it robbed me of so much um being able to make something helpful with it is a way to reclaim and redeem. So that's, that is why I do it. I mean, there's the bigger picture of what happened to me on a small personal scale is happening to our wider culture and our nation. Yeah, Like there's, it's relevant to today's audience. Um, And it's a cautionary tale and I can tell you what, what it's like to live in their America um, and their world, but more personally, I tell it because I have to make something with it. I have to I have to do something useful with it or it doesn't make any sense to me at all, which is not to say it happened for a reason. It says I'm just yeah. taking the material given and trying to make something beautiful with it. There's a quote by Carrie Fisher. I think it's like, take your pain and
1: make art or something yeah. to that effect. And I've always loved that because that's one of the things I think where we get beauty from is the mm-hmm. imperfectness and the...
0: Yeah, we can't change what happens to us. No, you know, it, it happened. Yeah, it just happened. But it is not going to get the my. I'll say this till I die. It took my past. It does not get my present and future too. That's on me. I get to say how I'm going to use my story.
2: Tia, I I feel like you embody our 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 hashtag, which is hashtag #PrayPower. Hey, power. <laughs> <laughs> um. That's high praise. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Like, like, honestly, thank you because um, it means the world to have people who have gotten in touch with that power, uh, but who didn't, who who were overcome by predatory uh, people um, and systems, and 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 digging down and finding that space of finding you. That is the gift that you offer us, and that that was held back from all of us for so long is is um, so cruel to to mm-hmm. to your voice and to the rest of us who um, soar when you speak your truth. And yet, if it hadn't happened, um, we wouldn't get to hear your incredible story. Um, I know like we could I feel like this is just the, we're I feel like yes. we're getting to the part beginning part 2 we need a
1: part 2 so, so
2: would you be uh, we would love if you would come back and and kind of take us to Uh, because at this point in your story you just have gotten kind of sort of (laughs) out and I'm dying to ask you where did you go but don't answer it because if you're willing to come back I would love for you to tell us in part two where did you go and and then how did you get here yes Uh, right so so if you would be willing to do that that'd be amazing you're so
0: welcome thank you any opportunity to get the word out
2: Yes. And uh,
1: yeah, so stay tuned for part two. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tio. Tia.